Good morning. How is everybody? Good, me too, thanks. We're, uh, I hope you're ready for this. We're in week five, as Ryan said, of a six-week uh, series on work. We've been looking at work from lots of different angles. And what we've been trying to do is understand how God views our work, and more importantly, how we can align our vocational work to the big work that God wants to do in this world. And this morning, we're going to look at all of this through the lens of one specific industry, Wall Street. Now, some of you, when I just say those words, you get bored. You're already bored. And some of you, when I say those words, you get angry. You hate Wall Street, and you can't believe we'd be talking about this in church. And what I want to say to those two categories of people up front is just hang with me. Hang with me because, uh, for one thing, several people requested this topic, so there are people who want to hear it. And some of you are thinking, I didn't know you could make requests. And sure, wave them into Ryan. <laughs> Give him all your requests. And second of all, um, this is an important sector, obviously, to this city. So I think it does us some good to think about it. And most of what I'm going to say, by the way, can be applied to any line of work, to any vocation. But I am going to frame it within the Wall Street context. And I'm going to do that for a couple of reasons. For one, we're trying some new uh, things here. For one, uh, that's where I work. And, uh, you know, you guys see me on Sunday morning, so you don't have a full appreciation for this. But uh, I'm kind of a big deal on Wall Street. (laughs) So, uh, you know, just to prove it, we're going to show you a couple of pictures of me in action at work. (laughs) Sorry, that went too fast. Let's try that again. I think I've lost. We're trying some. This is. <laughs> we're trying some new technology so that we can show amazing pictures like this in church. Have you, have you ever seen something like that in church? Or, or how about this? I am a big deal on Wall Street. See, proved it. <laughs> Second of all, that's where a number of you work. A number of you work on Wall Street. In fact, one out of every nine. New Yorkers works in this industry, and my hunch is that within this room, that percentage is even higher. Um, Regardless, whatever you do for a living, the fact that you're living in New York City, where this industry has such a dominant position, I think it does you a little bit of good to think about how you can serve God in this industry. If we were a church in Iowa, we might talk about how farming can serve God. If we were a church in West Virginia, uh, we might talk about mining. So I think by consequence of where we are, it makes sense to do this this morning. And we're going to have three sections this morning. The first is a case for being a Christian on Wall Street. The second, we're going to look at how God views Wall Street. We're going to look at the two big motivating factors for why a lot of people go to Wall Street, money and power. We're going to look at how God views money and power. And then at the end, we're going to talk for a couple of minutes about how to make this practical, how to apply this to your daily work lives. Um, We're going to use a parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 25 to guide us this morning. It's called the Parable of the Talents. And this is one of the most significant parables that Jesus tells that relates to our work. And it's set within the context of investing. The parable is about a master who goes on a long journey. And while he's gone, or before he leaves rather, he leaves his wealth to three of his servants. To one servant he entrusts five talents, which was a large sum of money. To another servant he entrusts two talents. And to a third servant he entrusts one talent. He goes away, he's gone for a long time, and then he comes back, and when he comes back, he asks his servants to account for how they've invested the resources that he's given them. 
the master and the servant obviously represents Jesus, and we represent his servants. And this parable is specifically directed to us, to followers of Jesus who are living at this particular moment in human history, the time between when Jesus left earth and when he's promised to return. And while he's away, he's entrusted to us certain talents. He's given us time, money, abilities, resources, and he expects us to do something with those talents that will please him when he returns. He expects us to be busy. This harks back to one of the main themes of week one of our series, which is that God expects us to do something with our lives that will contribute to his kingdom building. And two of the servants in this story are busy. We don't know exactly what they were doing, but they did something to double the investment that they were given at the outset. The third servant plays it safe. He buries his money in the ground in order to protect it. And at the end, when the master comes back, the third servant is rebuked for being wicked and lazy. And what's interesting is that, as far as we know, he didn't do anything wrong, per se. He didn't commit any ethical violations. He didn't try to steal anything. But the point is, he didn't really do anything. He just played it safe. And the point of the parable, in fact, one of the main points of the Christian life, is that God wants us to be busy. He wants us to be doing something with our lives that will contribute to the kingdom that Jesus will rule over when he comes back. And as we said in week one of our series... We ought to view all of our vocations as somehow contributing to God's kingdom building. And that includes Wall Street. That includes Wall Street. Now, to some of you, the very idea that you could connect Wall Street to God's work is is nothing but a joke. In fact, you may remember back in 2009, less than a year after the worst part of the financial crisis, that CEO Goldman Sachs made an offhand comment to a reporter in London where he referred to the work of an investment bank as doing God's work. Sort of went viral, it was picked up everywhere, became the headline of that article about him, and he sort of still can't live it down. To a lot of people, it's just a, a joke that Wall Street could contribute to God's work. And if you're a Christian on Wall Street and feeling a bit beat up, it's understandable. There was a poll done by CNN in 2011, and they found that only 3% of Americans say they think they can trust people who work on Wall Street. If you're a Christian in this sector, the Christian media sort of perpetuates this too. If you go to the popular Christian news website, Christianity Today, and you type in working on Wall Street, this article comes up. I don't know if you can see this. This is the first article that comes up, how working on Wall Street can corrupt your soul. (laughs) Or maybe if you walked by the Zuccotti Park stuff a couple of years ago, you saw this Jesus character holding a sign that says, I threw out the money lenders for a reason. So if you're a Christian on Wall Street and feeling a bit beat up, it's understandable. In fact, hating this industry goes all the way back to the founding of our country. We read about Thomas Jefferson cursing Alexander Hamilton, our first Treasury Secretary, as nothing but an evil money lover. And today, more than two centuries later, the complaints are largely the same. This is a sector that does nothing but pay themselves and create chaos for the rest of us. And and that animosity sort of speaks to the fact that while the financial services industry is only 8% of our GDP, it punches way above its weight in terms of its influence on the rest of the economy. It's arguably the only industry that can bring up or down the entire global economy. And because of that, it has a lot of influence, obviously. So when it works, when it works, it can create enormous benefits for all of us. And this necessarily isn't in the Bible, but the way I view Wall Street is that when it works, it really can contribute to human flourishing. Wall Street, in a sense, is a bridge. 
I like to think of it as a bridge that connects on one hand people or organizations who have money to invest with people or organizations on the other hand who have ideas that when bridged with the money can turn their ideas into job-creating businesses. And whether it's your smartphone or a life-saving drug or Amazon or your favorite restaurant, all of it at one point was a risky project that needed financing. And if you work somewhere in the financial sector, you are somehow contributing to that bridge. Maybe you're advising investors, maybe you're a financial advisor, or, or maybe you're advising companies as an investment banker, or maybe you're working on the bridge. Maybe you're making markets, or maybe you're a trader, or maybe you're working on the infrastructure of the bridge on the technology side. Somehow you're contributing to that system, which can, when it works well, contribute enormously to human flourishing. And you say, okay... I get that, in theory, at least Wall Street can contribute to human flourishing, but isn't the version of Wall Street that we have today just corrupt? Isn't it just full of greed and hubris and totally corrupt? And if that's true, then I say all the more reason for Christians to run toward it. We can be a light in a dark place, in a pretty important dark place. William Wilberforce famously said that we ought to view the problems of this world not just as economic or social problems, but as spiritual problems. And as people of God, we ought to run toward the problems that exist in Wall Street with the view that they're not just economic or social problems, but spiritual problems that require spiritual answers. I think that's especially true now. We've uh, been, over the last uh, six or seven years, through uh, an enormous financial crisis, one of the biggest financial crises in the history of markets, and we're still trying to figure out how to restore trust to the industry. Last fall, the Federal Reserve launched here in New York a comprehensive project aimed at restoring the culture of the financial services industry. And we can debate how effective regulators can be in influencing the culture. I think they have an important role to play. But what we should all agree on is that this is a time, if there ever was one, for the people of God to assert themselves within this industry. And to do so, to do so, that means, by the way, that we have a heavy responsibility, and to do so, to assert ourselves within the industry, we have to first understand how carrying out this responsibility, what it means. So we have to understand how God views Wall Street. And we're going to look, we're going to look at how God views the two big reasons why a lot of people go to Wall Street. First, how does God view money? We see in this parable, and in fact we see throughout the Bible, that the accumulation of wealth in and of itself is not treated as evil. In fact, a lot of the biblical heroes have enormous amounts of wealth. Solomon has a lot of wealth. Abraham is extremely wealthy. We also see that there's places in the Bible where God grants wealth as a reward for faithfulness. That's the case in this parable. That's also the case in the book of Job. At the end of the book of Job, God grants Job a reward for his faithfulness, and the reward is he restores twice the property that he had before his disaster struck. But the point beyond that, when you look at Scripture, and Jesus is relentless in making this point, is that the purpose, the real purpose of us having money in this life is to store up treasure for ourselves in heaven. The purpose of us having wealth here is to store up treasure in heaven. Jesus says... In Luke 12, sell your possessions and give to the poor in order to provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. And when you break that statement down, Jesus is saying something really radical. What he's saying in part is that it's not wrong to want to accumulate wealth. It's not wrong to want to accumulate wealth, but the, the way you do it, the way you accumulate real wealth in purses that won't wear out, is by giving your possessions away, by 
using your money and the resources that God has given you to invest in his kingdom. In fact, Paul goes on in Ephesians 4.28 to say that one of the primary reasons for us working at all is so that we can have something to give to the poor. He says this, Anyone who has been stealing must no longer steal, but must work, do something useful with their own hands, so that we can have something to share with those in need. There was a really interesting piece in the New York Times just last month about a trader on Wall Street who takes this view of money really seriously. I'm going to read the first three paragraphs of this article to you. It says, Matt Wage was a brilliant, earnest student at Princeton University, a star of the classroom and a deep thinker about his own ethical obligations to the world. His senior thesis won a prize as last year's best in the, in the philosophy department, and he was accepted for postgraduate study at Oxford University. Instead, after graduation in 2012, he took a job at an arbitrage trading firm on Wall Street. You might think that his professor, Peter Singer, the moral philosopher, would disown him as a sellout. Instead, Singer holds him up as a model. That's because Wage reasoned that if he took a high-paying job in finance, he could contribute more to charity. And sure enough, in 2013, he donated more than $100,000, roughly half of his pre-tax income. One of the major charities Wage gives to is the Against Malaria Foundation, which by one analyst calculation can save a child's life on average for each $3,340 donated. This suggests that Wage may save more lives with his donation than if he had become an aid worker. I don't know anything about this guy other than what we just read, but that's a really biblical way of viewing money. That's a really biblical way of viewing money. What the, the point we're trying to make is that it's not wrong to want to accumulate money if your goal with the money is to invest it in God's kingdom. And by the way, it's okay if investing it in God's kingdom is self-interested, because God says he's going to reward you for that by giving you treasure in heaven that will never wear out. There's one more example. If you've been around Wall Street for a while, you've undoubtedly heard the name Julian Robertson, one of the most successful hedge fund managers of all time. Julian started in 1980 a hedge fund called Tiger Management, and he, Julian, is known as being a great investor and a great stock picker himself. But he's equally legendary for being a great picker of human talent, for being a great picker of people who will make great investors. In fact, more than three dozen hedge funds have spun out of Tiger Management, all started by people who were his protégés. The whole cohort of them are known as the Tiger Cubs. And Julian's in his 80s now, and I heard him give an interview a couple of years ago where somebody asked him about his ability to pick such great investing talent. And he said he looked for three qualities in people that would make great investors. Number one, he said they were highly competitive and they often liked sports. Number two, he said they had uncommon integrity. And number three, he said they wanted to change the world. And the third one is interesting because not a lot of us think about going to Wall Street to change the world. But here's one of the most successful Wall Streeters of all time. And he says, that's what I look for in people who will be successful on Wall Street. He said, by the way, he goes on to talk about how there's two ways to change the world through Wall Street. You can either be really selective with your investing and invest in companies or ideas that you believe will make the world a better place, or you can just be really good at your trade, be really good at your trade and make a lot of money and give the money away. That's a very biblical way of thinking about wealth. That's a very biblical way of thinking about wealth creation, using what God has given you in this life to invest it in God's kingdom. And by the way, as Jesus says, you get to keep it in the next life. You don't get to keep it here. So it's in your self-interest. That's how God views money. And 
What we're saying is the future reward ought to drive how you think about your money today. The same is true with power. Let's look at how God views power. And the more polite word probably is responsibility. Let's look at how God views our quest for responsibility. And I think we'll find that the same is true here. What we know about the future and what we know about the future reward that God will give us ought to dictate how we think about our quest for responsibility today. If you knew with certainty something that was going to happen tomorrow or next year, that would dictate somehow something you do differently tomorrow. If we knew for certain something that was going to happen in the future, that would change the way we think about something. On Wall Street, we spend millions of dollars and countless hours trying to predict the future. When will interest rates rise? Where will the euro-dollar exchange rate settle out? What will the price of oil be a year from now? We spend millions of dollars trying to answer those questions, and nobody's ever going to get it. But if you're a believer, you know one thing for certain about the future. You know that Jesus will come back, that this portion of human history ends when Jesus will come back, and when he does, he said he will reward those who have faithfully invested their lives for him. And what's really interesting, what's really interesting is that the reward mentioned in this parable ought to be really motivating to type A New Yorkers, because the reward mentioned in this parable is more responsibility. The master says, you've been faithful with a few things, so I will make you ruler over many things. More responsibility. Now, there's lots of rewards mentioned throughout the Bible, but the one mentioned here is more responsibility, more power, more authority. Notice also that the servant who hoarded his money, who kept it for himself, gets it taken away from him, and it's given to the guy who took the most risk. The lesson here is that the faithful will get bigger opportunities, and the unfaithful will get even their small opportunities taken away from him. In other words, God is saying that he'll give more resources to a good steward than a bad one. If you're a money manager, imagine that you're a money manager and you have two investment options. One is a fund that consistently, year after year after year, outperforms, and the other is a fund that every year flatlines. You'd be a terrible money manager not to move assets from the flatlining fund to the outperforming fund. And Jesus says, I'm like that. I'm like that. If you're not faithful with a little bit, why would I give you more just so you can squander that opportunity too? But if you are faithful with a little bit I've given you, I will entrust you with a lot. And I think there's a great principle embedded here that can be applied to almost any area of our lives, which is that leadership at its root starts with good stewardship. Nobody starts off as a CEO or a president. You start in a humble place, in a lowly place, and you take advantage of opportunities that are given to you along the way, and then by the grace of God, you grow in influence. You grow in responsibility. Pride, hubris, is when you want a promotion that you're not ready for yet, when you want leadership and you haven't proven yourself ready for it yet. The key is to start small, to prove yourself in the small things, the small opportunities that God has given you now, and then show that you can be entrusted with more. But what you've got to know is that because this world is a broken place, because this world is an unjust place, even if you're totally faithful with the little opportunities you get now, it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll get rewarded in this life. But what the parable tells us is that you will get rewarded when Jesus returns. When he returns, that's when he will totally set the scales right. He will totally balance things out. And when he does, he will give responsibility, he will give authority to those who truly deserve it. So... That's how we ought to think about responsibility. That's how we ought to think about it. And what I love so much about this parable is that it's telling us that it's not wrong to want responsibility. It's not wrong to want influence. It's not wrong to want to aspire to leadership. But the way you do it 
The way you aspire to that kind of greatness is by being great in the little things that God has given you right now. And for me, that's the message of this parable to me. That instead of thinking about the job I want at the pinnacle of my career, I need to think about aspiring to greatness in the life I have right now. In my family, in the job I have right now, in the life I have right now. And ultimately, our ambition for leadership ought to be geared toward the rewards that Jesus will give when he comes back. So... That's how God views power, and that's how God views money. Now let's figure out if there's a way we can make this practical. How can we really connect this to our work lives? And I want to lay out three principles that I think will help shape the way you should think about this in your work life. The first is recognize that God has given you something unique. Recognize that God has given you something unique. Your life is not a series of random events. Your family background, your education, your interests and passions, your experiences, even the painful ones, are all given to you by God in order to do something unique that nobody else can do. There's this beautiful verse in Ephesians 2 where it says, We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has prepared something totally unique for you to do. And just as the master in this parable gives his servants different amounts of money to start with, Jesus has given us, God has given us different abilities, different resources to work with. And one of the really interesting phrases in this parable is this little phrase found in verse 15, which says, The master gave to each according to his ability. And we're tempted, we're sort of tempted to feel sorry for the guy who only gets one talent. But what you have to know in reality is that God gives to each of us exactly what we need in order to carry out the work that he's called us to do. And instead of focusing on why this guy has more abilities than I do, what you need to focus on is what God has given you. And notice at the end, there, there is a quality found in this parable. Because notice that, that it takes just as much effort for the guy who has five talents to double his as, as it does for the guy who has two talents to double his. And that's why the reward at the end is the same, because the master measures success by degrees of effort. The point is that God has given you something unique to do. And instead of just going with the flow, instead of just showing up to work, you need to prayerfully consider why God has put you where you are. If you could imagine seeing the universe from the, the perspective that God sees it, He sees the whole world at the same time, from start to finish, all time, all at once. And he says, I'm going to put one of my followers in this company, around these people, at this specific moment in human history. And he's doing that for some reason, and I can't tell you what it is. But you need to prayerfully think about why you are where you are, and why God has put you where where you are. And what you'll find is that there are no easy answers. In fact, it's going to be pretty hard. It's going to be pretty uncomfortable. And I actually think we need to just embrace the fact that it's going to be hard, that it's going to be uncomfortable. I heard a talk uh, a few years ago by a Christian banker who was talking to a group of Christian college students, and somebody asked him about ethical challenges he's faced on the job. And he responded, sort of glibly saying, I've never found ethics to be a challenge. If you follow Jesus in banking, you'll always know the right thing to do. Really? What a, I thought to myself, what an unhelpful, oversimplified response to a group of college students who in reality needed to hear the sobering truth that trying to integrate your work and your faith is going to be really hard. Really hard. Following Jesus at work isn't a smooth, gentle path. It's going to be enormously stressful at times. You're going to face countless questions that don't have an obvious answer. What if you have a, a client, a client who has a balance due, and you know that your client is struggling. They're on the verge of going bankrupt. 
Are you supposed to take the Bible literally when it says, forgive us our debts as we forgave our debtors? What if you have an employee who's older but underperforming? How do you balance the biblical tension between justice and Jesus' call to be loving and forgiving? What if you feel like your company is making potentially deceptive claims about a product you're selling? Or, or how do you even determine a fair price for a product you're selling? There are immense amounts of questions that you will face at work as you try to integrate your faith and work that don't have an obvious answer. And it's no wonder then that so many of us, in order to just get around this stress, have decided what's best is, just to, is to totally bifurcate your work life, your, your public work life, from your private faith. You create two spheres of your life, and you refuse to acknowledge that there are enormous inconsistencies that occur as you go from one sphere to the other. By contrast, authentic Christianity, authentic Christianity that permeates every area of your life, I think it ought to actually invite discomfort. I think you ought to actually invite discomfort and deliberately place yourselves at the point of contact between two currents, the will of God and the will of the world. Because ultimately, disciples of Christ are most needed in the places where it's hardest to stand. And that certainly includes Wall Street. And while Scripture will give you a source of metaphysical and moral truth, it, it won't. It just won't give you a day-to-day -day playbook for what this look like, looks like in your work life. There's a, a really interesting story in the book of Second Kings about a guy named Naaman, who's the commander of the Syrian army. And Naaman goes on a journey to Israel where he's healed of a disease, and through this healing he encounters God, and he's converted. And as he's converted, he realizes that he's going to face a big dilemma when he goes home back to his job, because his boss, the king, is going to expect him to bow down at the altar of a pagan idol, just like they've always done. But now he's got a different, he's, got a, he's a follower of God now. So how's he going to deal with this? So he goes to this prophet named Elisha and explains the dilemma. And Elisha gives this astonishingly simple response. He says three words. Go in peace. He doesn't offer any ethical advice. He doesn't say, quit your job. He doesn't say, stay in your job. He doesn't give him any solution at all. All he says is, find the peace of God and go there. Maybe then the Christian banker's simple response wasn't so off base. Ultimately, the job on us isn't to figure out the right answer. That's, that's God's responsibility. All we really have to do is put ourselves in the situation and lean on Jesus. Because ultimately, as we grow in our discipleship with him, we'll become more like him. And of course, who we are will dictate what we do. And ultimately, as we've said, Wall Street has some pretty messy, complex challenges. And it needs people of God to run toward those challenges. But ultimately, what Wall Street needs and what the whole world needs isn't people of God, it's God. It's, it's Christ. And the real purpose of our lives ought to be to live lives that point to Him. Peter says that we need to be always prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you. When was the last time somebody asked about the reason for your hope? If it's not happening, my hunch is because maybe you're putting your hope in the same things the world puts its hope in. Maybe you're putting your hope in material things, wealth, power, lifestyle. What would it look like if you really put your hope in Jesus? Well, for one thing, it might mean if you didn't get a bonus this year, you're disappointed, but you're not devastated because your hope isn't lost. What if you make a big mistake at work? What if you're a trader and you lose a lot of money? Maybe you lose your job over it. You're disappointed, of course, you're, but, but, but you're not shattered because your hope isn't lost. 
Or maybe you're in a situation at work where somebody else is always taking credit for the work you're doing. Are you, do you lose motivation? No. Because God sees. You say, nobody sees how hard I'm working. God does. He sees everything you're doing, and he cares how hard you're working. Try practicing the presence of God at work. Try practicing the presence of God at work. That's piety. Piety in the best sense of the word. God sees what you're doing, and he cares how hard you're working. There's this beautiful verse in Ephesians 6, which says, Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving for the Lord, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good you do. And those kind of attitudes, not being devastated when you don't get a bonus, not letting it shatter your life when you make a big mistake, or not letting it get to you when somebody else has taken credit for your work, that'll set you apart immediately from the culture of your office. And as you do that, you need to be ready to give an answer to somebody who's going to ask for the reason for your different attitude. If you're a follower of Christ, you've been given a great inheritance. The good news of the resurrection, the salvation and love found in Jesus, and the knowledge of his coming kingdom. And that doesn't mean it's an easy thing to talk about. It doesn't mean it's an easy thing for other people to listen to. As we've said, the good news is pretty offensive before it's good news. But still, within Jesus contains the answer to every important question any human has ever asked. Imagine taking all of that and burying it in the ground, as the third servant does in this parable, just because you're afraid of failing or just because you're afraid of offending someone. Let's pray. God, when you called us to yourself, you didn't start something. Instead, you recruited us to join your work, which has long been underway. And we thank you, God, for the privilege of being able to participate in your work, to be able to participate with you in your kingdom building. We know that You called us, and we're yours, and that's overwhelmingly important, more important than anything else in our lives. We work for you. You are our real boss, and we know that it's not enough to believe in you. We have to work for you. We have to be productive for you. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand what that looks like in our daily work lives. I pray that you would help us, uh, give us the courage to place ourselves where it's really uncomfortable, and that you would help us understand how we act in those situations when it is really uncomfortable. In your holy name we pray. Amen.